0: Good afternoon. My name is John Herbst. I am the director of the Denutri Patrizio Eurasia Center, and thank you very much for coming out this afternoon. We have a big treat today. Ambassador Samantha Power, the U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, will talk to us about Russia policy. You all have her bio, so I'm not going to read it. Let's just say she had a distinguished career as a journalist and as an author, and an even more distinguished career in the government, a voice of conscience as well as sound, sound diplomacy. And with that, I will turn the platform over to her. Before, however, I must tell you, if you want to follow the conversation, it's at um, Russia Factor, hashtag Russia Factor. Thank you very much. <laughs> Ambassador Power, please.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you. I have had the privilege of serving in the Obama administration for eight years first in the White House, and for the last three and a half years as the U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations. I have never had a more meaningful job, and now I have just three days left. This is my last major speech as a member of this administration, and much as I would have liked to use it to urge young people to go into public service or to make the pragmatic case for strengthening the United Nations, I feel that the circumstances require me to focus on a much more immediate subject, a major threat facing our great nation, Russia. Before getting to the core threat posed by Russia, I want to stress from the bottom of my heart that the most, some of the most rewarding and impactful work I have done at the United Nations has come in the times when my Russian counterpart and I have been able to cooperate. Back in 2013, together, we negotiated a resolution to get the most dangerous chemical weapons out of Syria. Russia, as you all recall, was a key pillar in imposing sanctions on Iran for its illicit nuclear program, sanctions that were essential in bringing Iran to the table so that we could forge an agreement that cut off Iran's pathways to a nuclear bomb. And Russia worked really constructively with the rest of the Security Council to select the best candidate for a new UN Secretary General, a leader with tremendous experience and vision. While people tend to look to the Cold War as the paradigm for understanding the nature of US-Russia relations. The reality is that for pivotal parts of our shared history, US and Russian interests have frequently aligned. We fought together in both of the 20th century's world wars. Indeed, had it not been for the colossal sacrifices made by the Soviet Union in World War II in which they lost more than 20 million people, many times more than any other nation, friend or foe, the war would have dragged on for much longer. Millions more Americans and people of other allied countries would have lost their lives, and fascism might well have prevailed in large parts of the world. Not to mention that the post-World War II order may never have been built. Russia's immense contributions in that war is part of their proud history of standing up to imperialist powers, from the Mongols in the 16th century to Napoleon in the 19th century. In addition, many of the challenges that Russia faces today from violent extremism and China's territorial expansionist aims to national industries and jobs that have been rendered obsolete by globalization are ones we also face here in the United States. So let me say from the outset, it is very much in our interest to try to solve problems with Russia. Dialogue between us is absolutely imperative. Having said that, anyone who has seen my debates in the UN Security Council with Russia knows that I and my government have long had serious concerns about the Russian government's aggressive and destabilizing actions. The argument I want to make today goes beyond any particular action Russia has taken to its broader strategy and what that means for the security of the United States and the American people. Today I will set out how the Russian government under President Putin is taking steps that are weakening the rules-based order that we have benefited from for seven decades. Our values, our security, our prosperity, and our very way of life are tied to this order, and we, and by we, I mean the United States and our closest partners, must Come together to prevent Russia from succeeding in weakening that order. This means better understanding and educating our public about how Russia is challenging this order. This means reaffirming our commitment to the rules and institutions that have long undergirded this order, as well as developing new tools to counter the tactics that Russia is using to undermine it. And this means addressing the vulnerabilities within our democracy that Russia's attacks have exposed and have exacerbated. To do this, we cannot let Russia divide us. If we confront this threat together, we will adapt and strengthen the order on which our interests depend. Now, terms like international order can seem quite abstract. So let me be very concrete about what is threatened by Russia's actions. The order enshrined in the UN Charter and other key international agreements in the aftermath of the Second World War was built on the understanding that all of our nations would be more secure if we bound ourselves to a set of rules. These included the rules that the borders between sovereign states should be respected That even in times of war, some weapons and some tactics should never be used. That while forms of government might vary from one nation to another, certain human rights were inalienable and necessary to check state power. And that the nations that break these rules should be held accountable. Now, as we all know, a lot has changed in the seven decades since that order was created. When the United Nations was founded, there were just 51 member states, a fraction of today's 193. Some great contemporary powers were not yet independent nations, and many countries that did exist did not have a say, much less an equal voice, in developing its rules. In addition, some of the threats that we face today, such as violent terrorist groups and cyber attacks, would have been unimaginable to the architects of that system. So, there are many reasons why the rules-based order conceived in 1945 is not perfectly tailored to the challenges that we, as an international community, face in 2017. And it is reasonable to think that we need to update those rules with more voices at the table, some of which we will not agree with. Yet evolve as the system may, the vast majority of countries today recognize that we all benefit from having rules of the road that constrain certain kinds of behavior to enhance our shared security rules that must not be rewritten by force. Now, I also acknowledge that there are times when actions the United States takes in the interest of defending our security and that of our allies can be seen by other nations as offensive moves that threaten their security. And we need to be alert to this, which is why dialogue is so very important. And some may argue, not unreasonably, that our government has not always lived up to the rules that we invoke. As President Obama made clear when he entered office, while the United States strives to lead by example, there are still times when we have fallen short. Yet under President Obama's leadership, we have shown our commitment to investing in and abiding by the rules-based international order. The same cannot be said for the Russian government today. For years, we have seen Russia take one aggressive and destabilizing action after another. We saw it in March 2014 not long after mass peaceful protests in Ukraine brought to power a government that favored closer ties with Europe, when Russia dispatched its soldiers to the Ukrainian peninsula of Crimea. The little green men, as they came to be called, for Russia denied any ties to any of them, rammed through a referendum at the barrel of a gun, which Mr. Putin then used to justify his sham attempted annexation of Crimea. We saw it months later in eastern Ukraine, where Russia armed, trained, and fought alongside separatists. Again, Russia denied any role in the conflict it manufactured, again flouting the international obligation to respect the territorial integrity of its neighbor. We saw it also in Russia's support for Bashar al-Assad's brutal war in Syria. Support it maintained even as the Assad regime blocked food and medicine from reaching civilians in opposition-held areas. Civilians who were so desperate that they had resorted to eating leaves. Even as photographs emerged of countless prisoners who had been tortured to death in Assad's prisons, their bodies tagged with serial numbers. Even as the Assad regime repeatedly used chemical weapons to kill its own people. We saw it in 2015 when Russia went further by joining the assault on the Syrian people, deploying its own troops and planes in a campaign that hit hospitals, schools, and the brave Syrian first responders who were trying to dig innocent civilians out of the rubble. And with each transgression, not only were more innocent civilians killed, maimed, starved, and uprooted, but the rules that make all of our nations more secure, including Russia, those rules were eroded. We saw it in Russia's effort to undercut the credibility of international institutions like the United Nations. For example, in an emergency UN Security Council meeting last month, then Secretary General Ban Ki-moon told the member states that the Assad regime forces and Iranian militia were reportedly disappearing men as those forces took parts of eastern Aleppo. In response, the representative of Russia, which was providing air cover for the offensive, not only claimed that Russian investigations had uncovered, quote, not a single report of ill-treatment or violation of international humanitarian law against civilians of Eastern Aleppo, end quote, but also accused the Secretary General of basing his information on fake news. Minutes later, Syria's representative, to the UN echoed Russia's line, holding up as proof what he claimed was a photograph of a Syrian government soldier helping an elderly woman. The only problem was that the photo was taken six months earlier, in June 2016 in Fallujah, Iraq. In this same period, we also saw Russia's systematic efforts to sow doubt and division in democracies and to drive a wedge between the United States and our closest allies. Russia has done this by supporting illiberal parties like France's National Front, which has a xenophobic, anti-Muslim platform. When the National Front was having trouble raising funds for its 2014 campaign, a Russian bank with ties to the Kremlin stepped in to loan the party more than $11 million. While that may not seem, like a very large amount compared to the budgets of U.S. national campaigns, it was roughly a third of what the party was aiming to raise, and the National Front made significant gains in that election. With national elections coming up in France this year, the National Front has said that it is looking again to Russian financing for help. Little surprise that the party's leader has repeatedly attempted to legitimize Russia's attempted land grab of Crimea. Russia has also used hacking to sow distrust in the democratic processes of some of our closest allies and undermine the policies of their governments. Consider the case of Germany. According to German intelligence agencies, groups linked to the Russian government carried out a massive May 2015 attack targeting the German parliament, energy companies, telecoms, and even universities. And just last month, Germany's domestic intelligence agency reported an alarming spike in what it called, quote, aggressive and increased cyber spying and cyber operations that could potentially endanger German government officials, members of parliament, and employees of democratic parties, end quote. The agency attributed this to Russian hackers. The head of Germany's foreign intelligence service said the perpetrator's aim is, quote, delegitimizing the democratic process," end quote. In other instances, Russia's interference in democratically elected governments has been far more direct. Late last year, officials in Montenegro said that they uncovered a plot to violently disrupt the country's elections, topple the government, install a new administration loyal to Moscow, and perhaps even assassinate the prime minister. Montenegro's prime minister had been pushing for the country to join NATO, a move that Russia openly opposed. The plotters reportedly told investigators that they had been funded and equipped by Russian officials who had also helped plan the attack. It is in this context that one must view the Russian government's latest efforts to interfere in America's democracy. As our intelligence community found, and as you are now familiar, we know that the Russian government sought to interfere in our presidential election with the goals of undermining public faith in the US democratic process, denigrating one candidate and helping the other candidate. Our intelligence agencies assess that the campaign was ordered by President Putin and implemented by a combination of Russian government agencies, state-funded media, third-party intermediaries, and government-paid trolls. We know that in addition to hacking the Democratic National Committee and senior Democratic Party officials, Russia also hacked U.S. think tanks and lobbying groups. And we know that Russia hacked elements of multiple state and local electoral boards, although our intelligence community's assessment is that Russia did not compromise vote tallies but think for just a moment about what that means. Russia not only tried to influence our election, but to access the very systems by which we vote. At first glance, these interventions by Russia in different parts of the world can appear unrelated. That is because the common thread running through each of them cannot be found in anything that Russia is for. The common thread can be found only in what Russia is against, not in the rules that it follows, but in the rules that it breaks. Russia's actions are not standing up a new world order. They are tearing down the one that exists. And this is what we are fighting against. Having defeated the forces of fascism and communism, we now confront the forces of authoritarianism and nihilism. There are multiple theories as to why the Russian government would undermine a system that it played a crucial role in helping build and that has fostered unparalleled advances in human liberty and development. Perhaps, as some speculate, it is to distract the Russian people from the rampant corruption that has consumed so much of the wealth produced by the nation's oil and gas, preventing it from benefiting average citizens. Perhaps it is because our rules-based order rests on principles such as accountability and the rule of law that are at odds with Russia's style of governing. Perhaps it is to regain a sense of its past glory or to get back at the countries that it blames for the breakup of the Soviet Union which President Putin has called the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. It is not my aim here to theorize about which, if any of these motives, lie behind the Russian government's actions, which not only threaten our democracy, but the entire order upon which our security and our prosperity depends. It is instead to ask, what are we going to do to address this threat. First, we must continue to work in a bipartisan fashion to determine the full extent of Russia's interference in our recent elections, identify the vulnerabilities of our democratic system, and come up with targeted recommendations for preventing future attacks. The congressional hearings Initiated last week, the bipartisan inquiry announced on January 13th by the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, the Joint Analysis Report on Russian malicious cyber activity and harassment, and the Joint Intelligence Report prepared at the request of President Obama are all important steps toward achieving these crucial objectives. The purpose of such efforts is not to challenge the outcome of any races in our recent election. The purpose is to identify the gaps in our defenses that Russia exploited, as well as other gaps that may not have been seized upon in this attack, but that Russia or others could take advantage of in the future. And the purpose is to determine the steps needed to close such gaps and strengthen the resilience of our system. Because it would be deeply naive and deeply negligent to think that those who have discovered vulnerabilities in our system would not try to exploit them again and again, and not just Russia, but all the governments and non-state actors who see undermining our democracy as a way of advancing their interests. Indeed, it already has happened repeatedly. As we know, there were also hacks in our presidential elections in 2008 and in 2012 that these efforts be bipartisan is absolutely essential. Allowing politics to get in the way of determining the full extent of Russia's meddling and how best to protect our democracy would undermine our core national security interests. It is healthy for our parties in our political system to debate issues such as how to expand our middle class or what role our nation should play in the wider world. What is not healthy is for a party or its leaders to cast doubt on a unanimous, well-documented assessment of our intelligence community that a foreign government is seeking to harm our country. Second, we have to do a better job of informing our citizens about the seriousness of the threat the Russian government poses. Here too, our unity is crucial. When we send conflicting messages about a threat Russia poses, it sends a mixed message to the American people. A recent poll found that 37% of Republicans hold a favorable view of President Putin, up from just 10% in July 2014. That is an alarmingly high proportion for a leader that has had journalists human rights activists, and opposition politicians murdered for one who has ridiculed our constitutional safeguards and tried to tip the scales in our elections. I know that some have said that this focus on Russia that we are bringing is simply the party that lost the recent presidential election being sore losers but it should worry every American that a foreign government interfered in our democratic process. It's not about the leader we choose. It's about who gets to choose. Who gets to choose our leader? That privilege should belong only to Americans. We must also forcefully reject the false equivalency between the work that the US government and the Russian government are doing in other countries. There is a world of difference between supporting free and fair elections and investing in independent institutions that advance human rights, accountability, and transparency, as we do, and, on the other hand, trying to sow distrust in democratic processes, misinform citizens, and swing elections toward illiberal parties, as Russia is doing. Third, We must reassure our allies that we have their backs. And we must ensure that Russia pays a price for breaking the rules. That means maintaining our robust support for NATO and making clear our nation's steadfast commitment to treat an attack on any NATO member as an attack on us all. We expect all of our NATO allies to do their part in keeping the alliance strong, which includes meeting the pledge made in 2014 to spend at least 2% of their GDP on defense, a commitment that we in the Obama administration have pushed relentlessly for them to fulfill. We also need to increase cooperation and intelligence sharing to deter, detect, and defend against the next generation of hacks and cyber threats, particularly as France, Germany, and the Netherlands look forward to national elections this year. That also means maintaining the sanctions placed on Russia, including those imposed by President Obama in response to Russia's meddling in our election. Now, some have argued that the most effective way to get Russia to start playing by the rules that undergird this international order is actually by easing sanctions. If only we reduce the pressure, they claim, Russia will stop lashing out against the international order, but they have it backwards. Easing punitive measures on the Russian government when they haven't changed their behavior will only embolden Russia. Sending the message that the best way to gain international acceptance of its destabilizing actions is simply to wait us out. And that will not only encourage more dangerous actions by Russia, but also by other rule breakers like Iran and North Korea, which are constantly testing how far they can move the line without triggering a response. Similarly flawed is the argument that the United States should put recent transgressions aside and announce another reset with Russia. Yes, the Obama administration tried this approach in our first term, but 2017, is not 2009. In 2009, Dmitry Medvedev was president of Russia, and we were able to find common ground on issues such as counterterrorism, arms control, and the war in Afghanistan. More important, in 2009, Russia was not occupying Crimea, fueling an ongoing conflict in eastern Ukraine, and bombing hospitals and first responders in Syria. Nor, most importantly, had Russia interfered directly in the US election. Yet it would be a mistake to think that all we need to do is to to defend ourselves and our allies against the threat that Russia poses is to rely on the same tools we have been using. That if we just close the gaps in our defenses, inform our public, maintain or even ratchet up sanctions, shore up NATO, if we do all that, it would be a mistake to believe that we will be able to protect the rules-based order. We have to do more. Because Russia has an edge in one respect. It turns out it is easier to break institutions down than to build them up. It is easier to sow skepticism than to earn people's trust. Making up fake news, ask the reporters here today, is a lot easier than reporting the facts required for real news. Put simply, in international affairs in 2017, it is often easier to be bad than good. Let me give just one example. On September 16, 2016, as you might remember, a humanitarian convoy of the Arab Red Crescent was bombed in the Syrian city of Urum al-Kubra, killing at least 10 civilians and destroying 18 trucks filled with food and medicine intended for desperate Syrian civilians. Because the strikes were carried out in a region where only the Assad regime and its Russian allies were flying, the attack was widely reported as being, as likely being carried out by the regime or Russian forces. Yet rather than accept any responsibility, rather than even try to get to the bottom of what had happened, The Russian government did what it always does in the face of atrocities with which it is associated, deny and lie. Russia's Ministry of Defense initially said no airstrikes had been carried out in the area by Russian or Syrian planes and that its expert analysis of video footage of the strike showed that the aid convoy had been destroyed by a fire. Then, President Putin's press secretary said that terrorists had been firing rockets nearby suggesting that they were the ones who had struck the convoy. Then, Russia claimed that a US drone had been detected above the convoy just minutes before it was struck, contradicting its initial assessment that the convoy had not been hit from the air. Two days, three stories, all false. Yet, Russia's willingness to lie turned reporting on the attack into, uh, on the one hand, on the other hand story even in respected outlets like the New York Times, the BBC, and CNN. And Russian government-controlled networks like RT played a critical role in this effort, rapidly disseminating those lies while questioning the accounts of witnesses. As RT's own editor once said, quote, not having our own foreign broadcasting is the same as not having a Ministry of Defense. When there is no war, it looks like we don't need it, However, when there is a war, it is critical," End quote. In other words, lying is a strategic asset. It didn't matter whether Russia's accounts were accurate or even consistent. All that matters was that Russia injected enough counterclaims into the news cycle to call into question who was responsible. By the time the UN issued a report on the incident, more than three months later, concluding that the convoy had been struck by an airstrike that could only have been carried out by the Assad regime or Russia, the finding and Russia's cover-up received almost no attention. Deny and lie. At times, it can start to feel that the only way to outmaneuver an adversary unbounded by the truth is to beat them at their own game. But that would be deeply misguided. If we try to meet the Russian government in its upside-down land, where right is left and black is white, we will have helped them achieve their goal, which is creating a world where all truth is relative and where trust in the integrity of our democratic system is lost. We don't need to gin up our own propaganda networks, bankroll our own army of trolls and inundate social media platforms with even more fake news targeting our adversaries. We have to fight misinformation with information, fiction with facts. But documenting and spreading facts, just like manufacturing fake news, takes resources. A report by the UK Parliament found that the Russian government spent between 600 million and 1 billion a year on propaganda arms like RT. So we need to be spending at least as much, and arguably much more, on training and equipping independent reporters protecting journalists who are under attack, and finding ways to get around the censors and firewalls that repressive governments use to block their citizens from getting access to critical voices. This brings me to the fourth and final way to address the threat Russia poses to the rules-based international order. We must continue to seek ways to engage directly with the Russian people and, coming back to where I started with the Russian government. It can be easy to forget that virtually all the tactics the Russian government is using to undermine democracy abroad are ones that they fine-tuned at home on the Russian people to devastating effect. After all, when Russian soldiers are killed fighting in a conflict in Eastern Ukraine that their government denies it has any role in, it is Russian mothers widows, and orphans who are denied the benefits and recognition they deserve as family members of slain soldiers. The mafias that the Russian government uses to sow corruption abroad profit most off the backs of the Russian people. And it is Russian journalists and human rights defenders who have been harassed, beaten, and even killed for uncovering their government's abuses. So we must be very careful to distinguish between the Russian government and the Russian people. We cannot let America's relationship with a nation of more than 140 million people, people who have made remarkable contributions to the world, who have a proud and rich history and culture, and whom we fervently wish to see prosper, be defined solely by the nefarious actions of a tiny subset in their government. And yet, we have less contact with ordinary Russians today than at any time in decades. This is no accident. In the past few years, the Russian government has closed 28 U.S. government-funded American Corners, which offered free libraries, language training, and events about American culture to Russian citizens. And it has shuttered the American Center in Moscow, which hosted more than 50,000 Russian visitors per year. It has also expelled U.S. government-supported and independent nonprofits, such as the National Endowment for Democracy and the Open Society Foundation, which had spent decades fostering civil society and the rule of law in Russia. As the Kremlin closes off these outlets for reaching the Russian people, we must find others to take their place. We also cannot give up engaging with the Russian government. We should do this in part because collaborating on issues of shared interest will allow us to show, not just tell, what we know to be true, that our nations have a lot more to gain by working to build up a system of shared rules and principles than tear it down. And in part, because by working together, we may be able to to rebuild the respect and the trust needed to tackle unprecedented global threats that we face today many of which cannot be solved without one another's help let me conclude in 1796 our nation's first president george washington used his farewell address to issue a stark warning to the american people about the danger of foreign governments trying to interfere in our democracy he told his audience the following, quote, against the insidious wiles of foreign influence, I conjure you to believe me, fellow citizens, the jealousy of a free people ought to be constantly awake since history and experience prove that foreign influence is one of the most baneful foes of Republican government, end quote. More than 220 years later, Washington's warning feels strikingly relevant. For if anything, the vulnerabilities that Washington saw, in his words, to tamper with domestic factions, to practice the arts of seduction, to mislead public opinion, to influence or awe the public councils, those are his words, those have only multiplied with modern technology. And unlike in 1796, it is no longer enough for us simply to protect our own democracy against foreign interference. We also have to protect the integrity of the entire rules-based international order on whose foundations our security and our prosperity rest. Yet while so much has changed since Washington issued his warning, The essence of the threat has not. It goes to the creation of America itself, a nation born out of a simple yet revolutionary idea that it was the American people, ordinary citizens, and not a government, domestic or foreign, who should enjoy the rights to shape our nation's path. That is a right that we have had to fight to defend throughout our history. And while in recent decades we may have felt confident that no power would dare try to take that right away from us, we have again been reminded that they will try. Just as the threat is fundamentally unchanged since Washington's time, so is our most effective way to confront it. And that is by renewing the faith of the American people in our democracy. Our democracy's vitality has long depended on sustaining the belief among our citizens that a government by and for the people is the best way to keep ourselves and our loved ones safe, to preserve the freedoms we value most, and to expand our opportunities. It is not that we have a perfect system, but a perfectible system. One, that the American people always have the power to improve, to renew, to make our own. That faith is the engine that has powered our republic since its creation, and it is the reason other nations still look to America as a model. And it is precisely that faith that the Russian government's interference is intended to shake, The Kremlin's aim is to convince our people that the system is rigged, that all facts are relative, that ordinary people who try to improve their communities and their country are wasting their time. In the place of faith, they offer cynicism. In the place of engagement, indifference. But the truth is that the Russian government's efforts to cast doubt on the integrity of our democracy would not have been so effective if some of those doubts had not already been felt by many Americans, by citizens who are asking whether our system still offers a way to fix the everyday problems they face, and whether our society still gives them reason to hope that they can improve their lives for the better. In this way, and we need to reckon with this, the attack has cast a light on a growing sense of divisiveness, distrust, and disillusionment. But we know here in America not only what we are against, we know what we are for. So just as we are clear-eyed about the threat that Russia poses from the outside and unified in confronting it, we must also dedicate ourselves to restoring citizens' faith in our democracy on the inside, which always has been the source of America's strength and always will be our best defense against any foreign power that tries to do us harm. I thank you.
0: Congratulations, Ambassador Power. That was comprehensive indeed, if not magisterial. Uh, you raise a lot of very, very important questions. And I'd like to explore uh, some of these things with you. And let me start, which is perhaps the most important part of your speech, which was, was your summation, where you linked uh, the nasty intervention by the Kremlin in our presidential campaign with some um, vulnerabilities in American society. And you, you said that in fact Putin's intervention cast a light on these things. So what would you suggest, this is almost a metaphysical question, what would you suggest we should do to make ourselves stronger internally so that we are not susceptible to outside actors, malevolent actors, trying to influence our political outcomes.
1: Thank you, and thank you so much. I should have said at the outset um, to you for for having me and and for accommodating the time change. Thanks to everybody here. To accommodate
0: a star is not not a hard decision. For three days.
1: Um, (laughs) um, Look, you're asking not only a core question about the, the subject of my speech today, but a core question that all of us as citizens um, are asking with great urgency um, for some more urgency since the election than before but but this has been uh, this divisiveness, the polarization, the echo chambers uh, that we increasingly inhabit uh, the 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 way in which technology has allowed us to cater to our preferences, but thus to avoid inconvenient new facts that are at odds with our preferences or our pre-existing opinions. I mean, this, this, these divisions, the ways in which new studies are showing that people who have strong views, you know, whether it's on abortion or on climate change or, you know, on even infrastructure and how we approach infrastructure. If they have strong views and you give them new data uh, by, you know, what are seen or once seen as independent sources, they tend to believe, by and large, more strongly what they believe before, even if it's conflicting data. I mean, whoa, <laughs> what is that gonna mean? But I think, you know, there's also an alienation from from institutions and, I, I think that, number one, we need to be crossing lines, and as citizens taking on the responsibility of, of seeking out views that are contrary to our own, but those of us privileged enough to be in public life or in public service, which is the privilege of a lifetime, I can tell you, as one who's about to move out of it after eight years, um, we, we've got to do right by the people who put their faith in us. and. You know, there's no question that part of the alienation is from just the vast sums of money from the sense that uh, people who don't aren't able to mobilize resources of that nature, that there's not necessarily a place for them in in, in modern politics. Um, you know, that's not going to get solved uh, anytime soon, it looks like, unfortunately. but um, but but also just an eye to, instead of just everything being an excuse, To sound off and to affirm a prior belief, to just look: are our policies delivering for people? You know, are are we curious even to find out? And you know, there there of course um, a a lot is coming here in in the in the coming months, and there's a lot that is uncertain. And I don't want to weigh in on any uh, particular policy or make any predictions about how things are going to go. But but you know, maybe you know, out of the fact that a single party controls the branches of government, maybe there can in that at least be some opportunity to deliver more. Uh, we are disappointed that so much of what we sought to deliver was blocked. Uh, and indeed, as, as the president and others have noted, uh, some of the very people doing the blocking have benefited <laughs> in recent elections from people's sense that things were too blocked. So that's unfortunate. But, but maybe, if, if maybe for everyone, no matter what side of the aisle you're on, for this alienation that people feel, the, the polls we've been looking at for years of declining trust in institutions and, and all that we know about how much more extreme each of us are, are, are becoming in our corners, you know maybe, maybe that can be a, a common enterprise. And indeed, on some of the topics that I talked about today, you do see mo- you know, more bipartisanship, this week on looking into the Russian ha- hacking and so forth, than we saw uh, a few weeks ago. And so, so maybe an issue of this magnitude uh, could be a means of people coming together, and we, maybe we just need to find a few like that um, as our training wheels.
0: Okay, thank you. Uh, now I'll ask you the question I was meant to mean by my first question. Uh, what you said in your speech was very congenial to those of us at the Atlantic Council who have been working on these issues for the past several years. And you made the point, which I think was absolutely dead on, that Mr. Putin has his aim on the rules-based international order of the past 70 years and even the past 25 years as amended at the end of the Cold War. Uh, You also correctly noted that to make this argument, is a little bit abstract and people don't understand it. So here's my point. It seems to be almost self-evident that the extraordinary stability, particularly of the last 25 years no great power wars, not even a cold war, the extraordinary prosperity of the past 25 years, which has benefited us all, has been a result precisely of this order. How do we convey that so that the next time a poll is taken, 37% of the Republicans do not think that Mr. Putin is a benign actor?
1: Well, I think we, we start by having more of this conversation, um, but- you know, even as you were talking and even as I was talking, we, we, we also have to take note of the fact that, while well, you and I may hail the, the order such as it is and imagine the counterfactuals of a world without rules or a world where you have way more uh, rule breaking uh, going on at any given time. In fairness to the people who aren't feeling so great right now, you know, the world... Uh, because of ISIL's rise and you know the re- the number of displaced people in the world, which is the greatest since World War II, climate change. I mean, there is a sense also that the the rules based order isn't delivering sufficiently any more than our national or local uh, systems are delivering, and so you know we have uh, that now. This is again a self fulfilling prophecy because when you're blocked on the UN Security Council because one of the permanent members won't even allow you to have a seven-day pause to get food into Aleppo, uh, you know, then you're a citizen and you're looking at the newspaper and saying, man, that UN Security Council, what a broken institution. Um, and one country has the power uh, because of permanent membership and the veto uh, to dictate what the premier body for international peace and security um, says and does, and and so that's that's an issue. But, but I think you know as we have taken the fight to ISIL, as we work on something that, like cyber, needs vastly more attention and resources on, and that is countering violent extremism, so as to avoid the inspired attacks, which are have become more and more frequent, rather than the sort of top down organized attacks uh, that we became familiar with from from Al Qaeda and so forth. Um, but you know making the the international system uh, having some um, success stories and some bright spots and you know even if it's something small like the Gambia you know in the next couple weeks uh, making sure that the president elect actually is able to take office it's a tiny country but for the UN and for all of us to be able to come together on something very small uh, finishing the job against ISIL as a territorial matter taking Mosul taking Raqqa and showing what coalitions offer, and not just coalitions, coalitions that um, are examining targets uh, according to how they stack up, stack up against the uh, the laws of war. You know, one of the reasons Mosul isn't simple is that we're, we, we are not carpet bombing Mosul like the Russians and the Syrian government carpet bombed Aleppo. We know that it's a pyrrhic victory that just alienates people and will end up creating ISIL 3.0. So in a very measured, complicated, um, and uh, uh, you know, very, very challenging way, we are proceeding as methodically as we can in support of the brave uh, Iraqis who are taking this fight to ISIL. But I think success breeds success, and I will say as one bright spot, because it's a little dark. Um, uh, but as I mentioned, um, in, in part praising Russia's role, Uh, we have selected a new UN Secretary General who's all about results. Um, uh, You know, he was right there in Cyprus within days of taking over the job to try to get that across the finish line. You could end one of the longest, most protracted conflicts of our time. You know, that would be, uh, again, a sense that when we invest in diplomacy... Which needs we need a better balance for. We need to invest more in mediation, political solutions uh, at the UN than 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 merely in peacekeeping and some of the tools you and I have worked on. Um, but but I think there's a, there is a reason that even absent or alongside Russia's interventions of the nature that I've described, people feel that the international order too. Uh, you know, needs to deliver better. Um, so, so that, I mean, again, that's a, it. But, but the mistake would be to, for certainly as, as there's gonna be a lot of political transition this coming year, would be to think that there's a workaround or some door number two where you can avoid the UN. I mean, it's the only body where all the countries of the world come together. And given the nature of threats, whether terrorism, climate change, pandemic, you name it, um, this is the body that we need to invest in to strengthen.
0: In your speech, you offered four policy prescriptions for the West. Yes. The last one was to engage with the Russian people. How do we do
1: that? Well, you you may be more of an expert than than I, um, but I think um, you know we have dr- dramatically, just one example, uh, scaled back the kinds of programs we had 25 years ago on the information side. Um, you know, and if Voice of America, you know, the Radio Free Europe brand, which which we hear from so many people in Eastern Europe and in Russia, um, you know, made such a difference, shaped their understanding of the outside world, you know, a wholly different scale of investment in that. But also, I'm, I mean, I mentioned, you know, I think we even have here today uh, some Russian journalists who are... Uh, in our country, um, you know coming through learning about this country, the more we can do exchange programs. And again, now has not been a great time to be expanding the people to people ties because uh, that is done at a by, at least by government, at a governmental level with the other government. Um, but with a you know as we think about life after transition, uh, you know investments in these kinds of programs, dedicated efforts of the scale that we we used to bring to this to this enterprise. I think would be extremely important. So that's both information in and then the classic exchanges. Uh, there's not that much new under the sun. And indeed, the technologies for all of their uh, downsides, which we've talked about, you know, make it possible for there to be all kinds of contact day to day among young people. Um, you know, even in in middle school, high school. You know, well beyond, well before you even get to university exchanges.
0: I don't want to put you on the spot but I will not quite, uh, well, anyway. (laughs) Uh, There is an effort which might kill two of your birds with one stone. Um, Senators Portman and Murphy, so a bipartisan effort to increase precisely this capacity. They've introduced legislation. So this is both Republicans and Democrats working together and also addressing this critical need. What do you think about that?
1: Well, I'd have to look at the bill in question because I know Chairman Royce and others have also been been, uh, Seized with this uh, for a very long time. I mean, you know, look. Prior, I, I cited the poll from about President Putin, 37% among Republicans. And again, I can't vouch for the poll, but that was 10% in July 2014. The 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 there hasn't traditionally been an issue with with bipartisanship on on this account. I mean, That's this right. is a very new phenomenon. So, I uh, you know, I hope that. Initiatives like that, you know, again, without weighing in on the specifics, but uh, that that particularly in light of what I've just described and what we've all experienced over the last few years, but not just because of that, uh, but also because uh, it it is so in our interest to have a strong relationship to enhance mutual understanding. I mean, I you know, my speech lays into what Russia has been doing, you know, very very sharply. I realize. But I wanna stress in my time in New York the point I made at the beginning, which is when the US and Russia are on the same page on something, which is why we invested so much in trying to come to agreement on whether we could do joint targeting in Syria against terrorist actors. When we are on the same page or rowing in the same direction, that's when the Security Council becomes so much more functional. That's when the international order pays dividends, not just for the people who are vulnerable out in the world, who need the system to work, but also for our common security, um, which, because we are big countries, is much more at stake, uh, you know, in the general uh, milieu of, of the international system uh, when things go awry, uh, than than you know for some countries.
0: Well, let me ask one last question. You have a little bit of time. There has been talk, and it's, I would just call it talk, about the possibility of an early. Putin-Trump summit to conclude some sort of mega deal. What thoughts or cautions or advice would you have on on this possibility?
1: Um, I think for the last (laughs) hour, uh, (laughs) I I offered uh, (laughs) my thoughts insofar as, you know, high-level engagement uh, is going to be critical. But, and and, and, you know, particularly in an authoritarian or, or Populist authoritarian system like the one in Russia, you know, it's sort of one-stop shopping on on one level. Um, however, you know, we have to come into conversations as a general rule, and certainly with with President Putin, understanding our interests, understanding uh, the gaps that we want to shore up, and understanding you know, the costs of allowing a government, particularly a very powerful one, you know, and, and one with a Security Council seat, but the costs of allowing um, history to be erased. We, history can't be erased. It's, it, it the, the costs are too great to too many people, and the, and the, the jeopardy to, to our interests is too formidable. And so, I think, you know, of course, high level contexts uh are going to happen should happen uh of course again we 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 root we who are leaving this administration root uh wholeheartedly for a different kind of era uh but it can't be one that 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 glosses the past or that um papers over the the fact that you're talking about dealing with a leader who um has his own opponents um, you know, intimidated and in some cases killed, I mean, this is not your, your, your average, this is not a symmetrical, uh, this will never be a symmetrical relationship, um, absent a, a sea change. So I think, I think the elements of what we need to keep in place are there, if they are there, um, and along, one of those elements is dialogue, but, but not from a position of weakness or from forgetting history.
0: Thank you very much for sharing your thoughts and time with us
1: today. Thank you so much, John. Thanks for everybody for coming.